0: So the transparency around the rules with which you operate the infrastructure. When are dams going to be filled? When are dams under what conditions going to be emptied? You talked about flooding, right? So climate is changing in the short term at least. Glaciers will melt more. About 60% of the indices water comes from glacial flow. That's a lot. Think about how vulnerable we are to climate change.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. Pakistan is facing a severe water crisis, and this is being compounded by climate change and rapid population growth. The mainstream debate has been that storing water by building dams is going to solve the problem. But is this really true? To talk about this and a whole lot of other issues related to the country's water economy, I invited Dr. Iram Khalid Sattar to Pakistanomy. Dr. Sattar teaches in the Sustainable Water Management Program at Tufts University. Her doctorate from Harvard Law School was on the law and politics of federalism in the Indus Basin. Thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoyed this discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. I'm joined by Dr. Iram Sattar, who teaches in the Sustainable Water Management Program at Tufts University, which is where I did my graduate studies from. So it's a special episode for me to have her on. Uh, she has a doctorate from Harvard Law School, where she focused on the law and politics of federalism in the Indus Basin. And so really, she's someone who understands Pakistan's water economy really well and the politics associated with it. Uh, Dr. Sitar, welcome to Pakistanamy. Thank you
0: so much for having me.
1: I want to start with just an overview and get your perspective on the importance of the industry we're based in on Pakistan's economy. Obviously, Pakistan is an agricultural economy, a significant proportion of our GDP, and an even more significant proportion of our labor works in agriculture, Um, but in the last few years, what we've seen is output has declined, productivity, productivity has been flat, if not negative, and really, the Indus River Basin, at least from my perspective as an outsider, seems to be in, in a state of crisis. And I just want you to explain to our listeners uh, what the importance of this river basin is and what's going on uh, in terms of the ecological or the environmental impact of human activity on this river basin.
0: there, thanks so much. And thanks so much for starting there with sort of a little bit of the history. So. In many ways, I'm a legal historian and I think situating it historically is very important because I think context becomes richer when we sort of understand how has this basin historically developed. And so this is much older than we would normally give it credit for. Let me go back a little bit and just emphasize at the start that essentially, if you really want to understand Pakistan, its entire political economy and its model of economic development as well as its human development indicators, where it is currently um, and, 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 you know its dismal state of affairs, I really think that understanding the control of water is critical to why Pakistan functions the way that it does which is sort of like where my research questions began. So let me take us back a little bit to the history of, and we do this very briefly uh, for people who are not familiar, to the history of British colonial rule in then what was United India. And very functionally, its conquest by the British, by the East India Company of the Punjab. And what subsequently becomes you know, like the central vein going down Pakistan. Now, the control of water is, uh, is, is very strategic in a way because where water flows is where you have to control it by. So in 1849, in, in a very short version, the, basically the British dis- defeat Ranjit Singh. When they take over the Punjab, they have a couple of problems to solve. And we never understand this when we understand the control of water. Their problem was they had defeated what were they cast as the warrior caste of the Punjab. They had defeated Ranjit Singh's army. And now they had a problem. And in a very potted way, let's think of it as the problem that the Americans had when they uh, took over Iraq. If you didn't somehow manage to tie Saddam Hussein's defeated soldiers to yourself, maybe they would band again and become ISIS one day, right? In some potted version of history, that's what happened. So the British had a problem which meant that we need to settle these defeated soldiers now and tie them anew to the British Empire.
1: British were smarter than the Americans going into Iraq, right?
0: Can you imagine? And that's actually right, because British were, you know, like if you really want to study imperialism, you have to go back and study British history. I mean, this is around the world, right? They understood it. At the same time, there was this scientific belief in modernism in the 19th century that was growing, and for the first time ever, there was this ability to control water. So their idea was let's settle these soldiers on what were they, they classified as barren land. This is basically the lands of the Doabs. Doabs are basically you know between the five rivers of the Punjab, the land in the middle. If you understand, right there's no water flowing there and their idea is let's flow canals here settle people in these lands in the middle so they classify them as waste and they want to settle agricultural castes there so they make the warrior caste into the agricultural hmm. castes that's actually the history of why this began and there's all kinds of stories that we now tell ourselves about you know we have Pakistan if you read it in your Pakistan studies books I mean people have read these throughout throughout growing up in school and colleges, that Pakistan has the largest contiguous irrigation network in the world. Well, why did it begin? So we Mm. really need to prove that. So the British was settling soldiers, defeated soldiers, tying them to themselves. It was also primarily a revenue generation scheme. So the idea was the schemes were sold to investors in London. And the rates of return on some of these, what came to be known as the canal colonies of the Punjab were fabulous. 20, 30, 32% return. Mm. And these were very very profitable. So creating a revenue stream, pacifying a population, as well as targeting the third problem which was of overpopulation in eastern Punjab. And so that's where population was moved to these newly settled lands. Mm. It was solving India's famine problem, which was a recurring problem, and they wanted to be better rulers and solve the hunger problem. So a multiple at least three sets of reasons sort of came together and made the making of these canal colonies the most rational thing.
1: And, and they're interlinked, right? So on that there's, I'm thinking about the fact that you have a defeated set of soldiers that you want to rehabilitate, you don't want them fighting for long. You have a famine problem, so that can also cause instability in your empire, so you want to take care of that. And then as, on the other side, you have investors in London who really want to make a buck, and so you need to keep them pacified as well. So really, it's the combination of these three demands, essentially two for political stability and one for financial security and stability that drive um, this investment in the Doha as you defined it.
0: Exactly. And that's sort of it. And they do come together and they complement each other. The other thing that the British are really uh, freaked out about, which is a very serious problem for them, which is this historical great game. They really need to buffer what is sort of like then part of like Western India, right? So the Punjab and what we now call KPK province are what they're worried about that the Russians will walk through and take over their crown jewel of India. So it's this great game, like as you know, now in America, people...
1: Which which is still like, Pakistan is still dealing with, right? This great game from the Soviet era to now with the Americans withdrawing to the concept of strategic depth as defined by the Pakistani armed forces. It is also part of the British legacy uh, from the imperial days.
0: Right. And so this is these are their problems right now. These are their historical problems. As you're saying, we're dealing with these problems in the current era. And I mean, you know, so even in the US, right, there was all this sort of worry about like Russian interference in the previous election now in the upcoming election. Also. So it's always like there's this there's this worry about Russia. Right. And what Russia is doing. But there it's like physically right there. Right. So they could have marched over. So they're trying to create a loyal, settled area within British India that is tied to them that also then enables them to hold off Russia or any of its expansionist plan.
1: Which, sorry to interrupt you again, but that's also, again, interesting because now I'm thinking about the history I have read, the concept of martial races, but the Pakhtuns and the Punjabis, right? So then that also then makes sense because if you're trying to create a loyal base of citizens who can also then fight. The Russians, if they were to come at your border, you want them to feel that you are the martial races and that you can stand up to this threat, rather than being just you know, agriculturalists and peasants who will run east if the Russian threat ever materializes.
0: I think that's exactly right. And then look at how successful this is. And this is also when when we talked about like the political economy base. of so why Pakistan is the way it is. The genius of what the British do is this. This happens differently in some of the different canal colonies, but broadly the policy is that either at joining the army or upon retirement from the army, you get that plot of land. Okay, And think about what we now think about, which is Pakistan's current way of rewarding the military, right? Mm. Which is, you know, you get plots upon retirement. Right. This is one of the big things that are still talked about, that the military basically still gives plots of land to officers that retire. Well, where does that come from? It doesn't come out of nowhere. Right. It's something that the British created, an idea of rewarding tying to yourself by giving agricultural land.
1: Which is also like the part of the Roman imperial. I'm, I study Roman history at times and my past time. So that was their whole idea, right? Settling England or Gaul or others, like the generals or the soldiers who fought well were given those lands to settle so that you had a loyal base in these newly conquered territories.
0: Exactly. And of course, the Mohals did that also, right? So much of the conquest of India was exactly this, right? So if, you know, if, if, if generals are very, very successful who had come with Babur, this is how different parts of India were conquered and you know this is how so a revenue stream was generated, etc. The difference here was, was the control of water. So the idea is older, it just has this new idiom and that new idiom becomes perfect. Now we can give you irrigation water because there's not enough rainfall to do continuous, you know, so sort of you can't do agriculture in these lands without adequate moisture. So we give it to you. So exactly, these are these old ways of controlling and pacifying in this new language that they've created. And then just to close off this point, what happens is after they win in 1849, right, they conquer the Punjab. What happens is that in from 1861 to 1865, the American Civil War happened, Right. And so that's why it's really important to understand these things in these global contexts. These are local, very, very local things. And yet they have, they're affected by things that you wouldn't even at first think were affecting, them. right? At the American Civil War, the problem is that all of a sudden from the South, the American South, which is the big cotton producer, right? The supply of cotton is, is is sort of, you know, is stopped or is curtailed to the mills then of Manchester. So the British need a cotton supply. And this is almost perfect, right? These are these newly settled lands. We are, agri- you know, we are irrigating them. And so this is how you tie a local place, in this case, then primarily Punjab, to these global capital sort of developments. Right. So here we grow the cotton and then we import them, you know, into Manchester, process them. And that's how they, you know, that's sort of like the whole economic
1: model.
0: Mm -hmm. So the the American civil law has a big impact on why the canal colonies have to develop in the way that they do. And again, as a result, they subsequently become much more profitable. And the other thing that happens is that that is why Pakistan is such a cotton grower today. Right why is why is the textile industry and why is cotton such a big commodity crop it's because they began mm. in Pakistan into these global commodity markets so you really have to understand why is the economic model the way it is it's it goes back and it has these continuing effects and that's one of the things we just don't do enough we don't probe it enough we don't teach it enough we don't tell people this and we don't explain to them that, look, this is why you are the way you are. And if you don't have a good diagnosis, well, how are you ever going to sort of, you know, change anything? But mm-hmm. that's all sort of coming together in 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 the development of like water control and, you know, the ways in which it's developing in, in then British India.
1: Okay, so that's a great history re- lesson. And I think it's important for people to understand that so much of Pakistan's economic, political economy is is you know impacted by the history of British imperial legacy, um, so now we have this situation in our Indus River Basin where you know we look at growing sugarcane as a cash crop. You mentioned cotton, and cotton's declining. Sugarcane has become the new thing. Um, but from your perspective, how do you see the strains or the impact of all of this activity on the Indus River Basin, particularly because of climate change? And we read about the fact that Pakistan is at high risk of being impacted by climate change. We've seen floods, we've seen droughts, we have locust swarms going through the Punjab as we speak. Um, and so what is going on with this river, Indus river basin and, and what can be done about it?
0: Okay, so again, really helpful. I think one of the things that we don't do and don't take seriously enough is the massive ecological impacts of the way that we manage water. So you mentioned sugarcane, absolutely. So sugarcane is, it's obviously profitable in the short term, but of course there are massive subsidies that are given to it and that's a huge problem. Uh, Some years ago we had done a conference here at Harvard, which was a comparative conference on five river basins. And we had somebody uh, from Brazil and one of the things, this is again, you know, one of those asides and anecdotes, we'd had a conversation and he said, uh, so you you grow sugarcane, and I, s- I said yes, absolutely. So he said, uh, "Do you have irrigated sugarcane, or is it from rainfall?" I said, "I mean, all we've got is irrigation, right? Everything yeah. we grow is from irrigation. Are you you know, what that's it." He was stunned. The reason he was absolutely stunned is he said, "Look, there is no way that you can compete with Brazil on the competitiveness of sugar." There, you just can't do it. We've got rain-fed sugar cane. Okay, that's what it is. It's so easy, it's so cheap for us to grow. There's, you know, whatever. So on the international market, you can never undercut the price that we can put yep. sugar at. And that's absolutely right. So we are doing something that is not suited to our sort of agroecological conditions. We are doing it at huge cost. Uh, not just financial costs, but huge ecological costs because it's very water intensive. So a water country that is water supposedly stressed should have a rationale. I mean, there's a huge sense where a lot of our land use decisions and the crops that we grow decisions should actually be driven to some extent by the water access that we have, right? And the infrastructure that we then suppose, you know, subsequently need to build and manage, and then run for growing those particular crops. So mm-hmm. I think we have to have a complete rethink of what we grow, why we grow it, the historical reasons for why we grow it, and what what are we thinking, right? Is that our economic development model? So I'm, I'm somebody who thinks that this should be questioned, this should be probed, and these are massive problems, and we're not sort of doing it well the other thing that i just want to mention very quickly which we don't take enough account of so we, in pakistan to some extent we have the control of what is surface water sharing right so pakistan has a water accord that was signed in 1991 between the provinces and the federation to manage provincial water shares mm-hmm. there is to date no legislation that regulates the control of groundwater So about one third of the water that we use for agriculture is now groundwater abstraction. And there is no regulation of that groundwater abstraction.
1: And just to be clear, this is water that's extracted from tube wells, correct?
0: That is correct. Exactly. These are, you know, submersible pumps, tube wells is like what we call them. And they're run on two things, right? Either there's some kind of electricity connection that a farmer may have or they're diesel pumps. Now, again, those are locally polluting, expensive to run, depends on obviously the price of fuel. And yet, and, and it's totally unregulated, right? And there's a lot of mixing going on and churning of basically the aquifer, salts are being driven up even more and then put in, being put on the surface for irrigation. And our temperatures are very, very high. So in the context of climate change, right, global temperatures are rising. In just the last week, 8 of the 10 highest temperature cities, places in the world were within South Asia.
1: Yeah, I was talking to someone and yesterday and they said Multan was 52 degrees Celsius. That was the recorded high.
0: That's right. Jacobabad, all of these have been above 50, 52. I mean, think about that. So, I mean, that's enormously hot, right? It's difficult. So, in that hot heat, for instance, you are putting water on 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 the land surface, right? So there's a very high evaporation rate. And what water does is that it leaves behind all the salts on the surface of the river, on the surface of the land. So that's why you see so much if you drive through Pakistan, if you drive anywhere, you'll see a lot of salt deposits on a lot of land that has basically gone out of production, that is so degraded that now nothing can be grown on it. That's essentially a problem of having applied water having seeped, so there's water logging problems, but then the rest is evaporated, leaving behind the salt mm-hmm. deposit. One of the things that the World Bank has done, and this is something that my mentor was sort of very, uh, this is Professor John Briscoe, whom we are unfortunately lost too soon to cancer. One of the things that they pointed out is, along with the ecological crisis of the way that Pakistan uses its water, the attendant problem of the salts that Pakistan is depositing on its land because of this irrigation and the environmental and ecological impacts of that much salt deposit is something that Pakistan really doesn't have a plan to solve. Mm. So, you're actually sort of what the way to think about it is that we're actually killing the very land on which we're sitting. That's a huge problem, right? For a growing population, if You're sort of—it's like remember there's that Sufi story, right, where the you know the character sort of sitting on the very branch that he's sort of cutting off, right? In a way, we're that. In a way, we're
1: killing—we're killing killing the goose that lays the golden egg, essentially.
0: We are. We really are by being as bad at management as we are, and that problem also is historically a shortage problem. There was never enough water to spread it as far as it is spread, right? That's why at the advent of the green revolution, you had to go to tube wells because now you needed more water. So together, there's like this over abstraction problem. The surface water doesn't go far enough. And how do you flush out salts, right? Essentially, the only way to flush out salts is by putting more water. That's what takes it away. Mm -hmm. And it's the water that is short. Yeah and getting expensive to bring palm, however you bring it. So there's there's a shortage because of which we're creating this ecological crisis, and no one is really paying any attention.
1: So in, in the short term, then what I'm thinking about this now, I, I've been a critic just being an amateur watcher of this policy, is the livestock policy. Pakistan looks at the GCC markets as a big export market for its livestock, whether it's poultry, meat, red meat, et cetera. And I always believe we're a water scarce country and livestock is one of the most water intensive things you can grow on your land. So it doesn't make sense for Pakistan to do it. But now that you've described the salt uh, problem on the land, which means you can't grow as much. It means that you can keep pumping the water and grow beef or chicken or whatever on it because you still have the land. And guess what? Livestock can flourish on it um, uh, without need, with, with, despite the salt problem. Um, but again, it's short-term thinking. And I just wanted to get your view on how do you see when Pakistani policymakers talk about livestock as being the, the new uh, investment opportunity in agriculture in Pakistan?
0: So I, so I agree. And let's talk a little bit about dairy also. And so because I think they sort of fit in, right? So there's like this idea of like meat exports plus this idea of uh, milk exports. Mm-hmm. And so sort of they sort of flow together. I think the problem is that, and if I could just sort of problematize it a little bit more, in the late 90s and the 2000s, especially during General Musharraf's sort of time, there was an idea of doing a agriculture on a commercial scale, right? So bringing in a lot of these GCC investors who were then buying up, if you remember, land around the world, right? To then try and produce just for export to their country where they can't sort of produce. So Pakistan from time to time has these ideas of being a major food exporter uh, and without really tackling the problem of, well, where's the water coming from? How ecologically sustainable is it? Is it a short-term policy, right? Is it very, very short-term? And then, you know, then what happens afterwards, right? So there's no economic transition model of if this is something we do for a time, at the same time, it creates huge ecological devastation. And then what do we do? So on dairy yields, right? On both milk and buffalo, and especially on some of the local breeds, right? There's such little work and research sort of done. If you look at the dairy model, it's absolutely fascinatingly broken. And there's serious contradictions in it also. Oh, in say the last couple of years, right? What has happened is people like these big multinational companies, right? Or even say big sort of national companies. So now we're talking about, like the end rows of the world. Yeah. So that they've come in and they've said, well, we are going to procure milk from small dairy farmers. And this has really been touted as a big uh, development uh, win, right? So the idea is, look, great, these now people have a purchaser, right? They have a guaranteed purchaser for whatever milk they're able to produce. But the logic of the market doesn't work because what the what these big procurement people would prefer is farmers that are organized more commercially, that have uh, bigger heads of cattle, so that they can basically go to one sourcing center and buy a lot more milk, right? Instead of going to each person who has two or three heads of cattle and can maybe sell you eight, 16, 24, something like that liters of milk, right? It's dispersed collection, which is technically economically inefficient. Yep. It doesn't make as much sense. If you can just have like one place, which has 150 head of cattle, I mean, that's obviously much easier right, to make a profit on.
1: Rather than sending a truck to different small collection centers, you just send a big tanker and collect it from one place.
0: Exactly. So they would rather like consolidation, right? That's what they would definitely prefer. And what they've got now is this. So there is a huge push within Pakistan's dairy sector also, to now consolidate. But where does that leave the small dairy farmer, right? The person who has two or three head of cattle, which is really the average, okay? Two to five head of cattle is sort of like, and five is someone who's like quite richer, okay? So two, three is sort of like, you know, more common. Where does it leave those people if all of the urban um, sort of, if all of the urban supply can be met by bigger producers, right? Where there is money to be made.
1: That's one thing I've I've always wondered, like, you know, a lot of my professional work has been focusing on policy issues, investor issues in India, for example. And you look at India, India is Amul, and it has amazingly successful dairy cooperatives. And Pakistan is a large producer of dairy, like it's not as large as India, because India is a much larger country, but it is significant as a sector. But we don't have, there is no Amul equivalent of a cooperative. In Pakistan, that is a success story that you can look at and say that, you know, small farmers banded together through government support and have this amazing brand, which is, you know, doing good for the economy overall while keeping farmers uh, afloat and investing money in them so that they can they can keep modernizing.
0: that is such a good point. So I'm so glad that you brought that up because historically, what is interesting is that the British, by the way, tried to organize cooperatives. This is absolutely fascinating. And this is like we're talking like in the 1800s. But it really failed. And one of the reasons has been some analysis of why they failed. They failed essentially, I think, is because the farmers were always tied to the state. So a lot of these were migrants. They didn't have these old historical ties, even though now we're basically 150 years on from that time, right? So more ties may have been. But the farmers individually were tied to the state instead of feeling a local collective Sort of, and a communitarian sense, right? So, and now if we just jump to sort of like the modern era, right? So cooperatives have never worked in Pakistan. There are very small scale efforts at trying to organize cooperatives that are closer to urban areas of Punjab right now, where maybe some cooperatives are trying trying to take shape, but obviously nothing at the scale of Amul. But what's interesting is that when Friesland sort of Campina take Took over from Engro, right? So, you know, they're like the Dutch cooperative. Yep. And interesting is that if you look at their model in, in the Netherlands, that is a cooperative model. And they really tout it. They say this is where all of these glorious Dutch farmers came together and, you know, began this. And look, it's given amazing returns to these people, right? But when they come to a country like Pakistan and take over Engro's business, instead of trying to organize Pakistani dairy farmers also in a cooperative model, they don't do that. Here, they have a commercial model, right? This is a company that buys from all of these individual farmers and then, you know, puts it into Engro milk, right? Which is, you know, which is what it now does. So there's no there's no similar effort to collectivize. The meanwhile, the government is totally sitting this out. The government just thinks that this is somehow bringing foreign investment. And there's no conception of the way in which farmers are organized and what may be better for farmers instead of you know, where the returns can be in fact significant. Right? So, so all of these milk businesses are, are, are relatively successful.
1: And just to tie that up, I think from the original point, right, that we started off it uh, with was what's wrong with this. And I think from my perspective, what I'm gathering is that because you have such a commercial oriented system that is developing, that is not taking care of the small farmer, um, all of a sudden you have ecological stress on the system as a whole. And because that small farmer now is basically trying to sell to the commercial entity with, and that is trying to consolidate and the government is sitting out of it, you really don't have the investments in modern technology or modern techniques or anything new that helps them deal with what's coming around the corner, right? And that is a problem because in the short term, yes, Engro and its, it's a Dutch, subsidi- uh, just Dutch parent company can make a lot of money through this model. But five, 10, 15 years down the line, you're going to see again what we've seen in Pakistan's agricultural sector as a whole declining, if not flat productivity, a higher population growth that is going to put more stress on prices, inflation, all the other things that come with lack of investment at the real bottom of the pyramid where innovation must take place if the country is to progress.
0: I think that's absolutely right. Because if you think about it, there is no investment in sincerely trying to help the small farmer. So you're absolutely right. If you just see this, uh, you know, not that far out into the future. The small farmer doesn't have a buyer anymore in that model. It makes so much more sense for even people who have a little more access to capital and can consolidate a little more land to solve that problem, consolidate, right? Because when these big companies come in, what they tell dairy, sort of dairy farmers, a couple of things, right? Try and give a water source that is continuous to your cattle, right? Which is very hard for a lot of small farmers to do, right? Continuous access. Uh, try and have big fans that can cool the animals, okay? Try and have sheds instead of closed rooms. Mm-hmm. And the main problem that Pakistan has not yet solved and has to be solved, is that farmers essentially have to grow feed on their own land for their cattle, right? There are no major green fodder or cake markets. It, nobody does it at a massive scale, right? So you can't really be buying fodder in some kind of, you know, market where you can go sort of access it easily, right? Also, there's just, so there's there's this contiguous problem where you have, you're keeping the cattle, but you also have to pretty much grow the feed on your own land. If you can do that, then wonderful. Then of course, you've sort of made a closed loop system, Right. But it's, it's a hard problem to solve. It requires investment. Obviously, automatic milking will help, but no one, and someone will have to subsidize all of that, right? So where are the agricultural subsidies, the capital subsidies to make these changes happen? And it will make no sense for people to try and come in and do it for somebody who has just a couple of head of cattle. Mm-hmm. So in mm-hmm. the long run, those small farmers basically at the moment, look, about 56%, up to 56% of a farmer's actual income is coming from dairy, Mm. which is huge, right? So Pakistan keeps saying it's an agricultural country. It's not just an irrigated crops country, it's really coming from dairy. So this is like, it varies between, I mean, it's like somewhere between 45 and 55%, okay, which is a huge chunk of Pakistan's dairy. It's like, entire agricultural sector, right? So if so much is coming from dairy, where is the investment to make these, make these animals productive, right? Mm-hmm. Have yields go up, solve the food problem for the, for the animals, make it affordable, accessible year round. And, 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 you know, likewise, so no, no one is solving all of those problems. So the returns that they give versus the investment that they attract just doesn't match.
1: That's fascinating. I want to switch to maybe perhaps the 800 or I would call it the mega gorilla in the room, which is this debate in Pakistan about mega dams. I've grown up listening about Kalabagh. Now we've got the Mormon Dam and a couple of other Diyamar Basha Dam and others. We had the dam funded by the Chief Justice Saqib Nisar back in the day. And Pakistani's mainstream belief is that the water problem of the country is essentially a dam problem, that if you build enough storage, going back to your point, right, there's not enough water flowing to clear the salt out. So if you build enough storage, um, you will have water security, and as a result, food security and urban security and industrial security because water is critical for all these sectors. Um, What is your view on, is this just a simple matter of storage and do mega dams solve Pakistan's chronic problems? Or will they, in your view, create new problems that, Uh, are unheard of uh, at this point in time.
0: Okay, as you're saying, this is like the, you know, put your number pound problem, right? In in the country. Uh, I just want to very quickly pick up one part of what you said, and then, you know, then sort of focus on all of this. Um, The vision for when Pakistan adds more water its system. And this is also a significant misconception, right? Because a dam will only catch what is available, not be able to produce. All it can do is sm- is sort of like, you know, smooth the curve of the water availability because supposedly there's a big stock. Pakistan still wants to bring a lot of land under cultivation. Where it says, look, this is suitable for cultivation. So that problem that we just talked about, which is you have to flush the salts that no one is yet thinking about at the moment the thinking is if we add more water somehow with by making dams we just expand the area that we have that we can irrigate which still will leave the problem of too little water to flush out too much salt so that ecological problem is on no one's radar and i want to be really clear about this this is not anyone no one's thinking about this right this is a significant problem so let's like park that which is a huge problem right it should be tackled but it's not in the current model being tackled okay on the question of dams versus something else the issue I think is critical because Pakistan is still if we think of it simplistically in a hardware mode right so if you think of uh, physical capital infrastructure as hardware and institutions and the rules by which you govern them as software, there is a continuum of how you manage resources. That is not just let me build and let me expand, but it is about, uh, you know, what are the rules that I put in and how do I govern these things?
1: Okay? For example, how do I encourage small farmers to modernize? That's, that would be in the software side of things.
0: That's correct. As well as what could be on the software side of it, there is a fundamental lack of trust in Pakistan between federating units about uh, dams development, right? And that fundamental lack of trust can be tackled in a couple of ways, which would actually move the country to a better sort of paradigm. That's not happened. So, how could you do it? What you could do is say, okay, Forget whatever I will build, how do I operate what I do have currently, right? So if the rules for how I currently manage my existing infrastructure, are they transparent? Are they agreed? Do people trust how I, how I, how I govern the existing network? Then I think a lot of trust would be able to be built. And that opportunity has never really been taken. Things are very opaque. Things are hidden. Things are behind very high informational walls. Okay? And
1: I would just add, like on the dam debate, one of the frustrating things, at least from my perspective, has been any criticism or anyone who's trying to have a conversation about what do dams do, for example, in, this, in the Indus River Delta, for the lower, for the Sindhis who live and do agriculture in that Delta or the, what happens to the mangroves or what happens with the salt water coming in from the Arabian Sea because there's less water flow, um, is labeled as a traitor or is labeled as anti-Pakistan. And so you really don't encourage the space or build, develop the space to encourage debate on this topic. And so everyone. Uh, who says this is something we need to consider is sort of brushed as anti-Pakistan, anti-progress, a Sindhi nationalist, or what have you, because their view of what needs to be done to solve the water problem is is different than what the mainstream view is about building dams.
0: I think that's right. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of times popular culture can really tell you um, something about the national psyche. If you remember, there was that film called bar which was at the time it was really thought of as uh, um so you know there was this whole controversy about whether ispr had financed it or not right and then i believe the director at the time came out later after this whole controversy blew up and said no no you know it had nothing to do with that kind of financing and funding Now, even if it was, right, there's obviously so many people <clears throat> and we've gotten increasingly sophisticated now, right, about uh, utilizing media, right, and building a narrative, right? So if they did, you know, fair enough, right? But you should, you yeah. should be able to... Analyze- Which,
1: I mean, it, just to, to on that note, like, there's nothing uh, unique about it. Like, if you look at what happens in Hollywood, there's a known connection between Hollywood and the CIA in terms of building movies, like Zero Doc 30, et cetera, where special access is given to the directors and the cast to tell a version of events um, that helps build a national narrative, right? So it's not uh, anything that is unique to what the ISPR or the Pakistanis do in this sense.
0: Exactly. So it's not at all, you know, but it's just to be noted, right? In a long line of, okay, this is how people behave in practice. Okay, fair enough. So they're also an actor in the world, in the country, and that's what they're doing, those are their interests, right? So as far as being able to analyze their actions, we should be able to do that. But if you remember, the reason I'm bringing it up is in terms of that national psyche, that politician who was eventually like the savior and a hero, right? The big problem in that movie was that a dam had to be built, and his subsequent who we found out, the NGO worker Indian agent, Right. I mean, like how, how interesting, like, let's pick every trope. Right. So that person in that movie was trying to sabotage the making of the dam. Right. Mm-hmm. So making the dam was a big nationalistic project. And those who were traitorous to come to the country were trying to, you know, ha- stop the development of the dam, mm-hmm. ha- stop that construction just as an episode that we can think of as sort of researchers right and say wow so that's the self-imaginary right if you build a dam it's it's your you're you know you're you're a patriot and if you if you are trying to subvert it then you're a traitor so okay fine let's just acknowledge the simplicity of that we can see that
1: and, and just again to interrupt here I, i'm going back to like my childhood right and i still remember people from my parents generation even my grandfather's generation every time pakistan's agricultural crisis would come up or there would be a wheat shortage or what have you they would always say oh if we had built the Kalabagh dam back in the day and if, if pakistan had not been you know uh, been been held hostage by the Sindhis, for example, that would be the common thing I would hear. uh, Then we wouldn't have any of this agricultural problem because Galaba would be there and we would have enough water to grow whatever we want. So it's a that psyche that you're describing is like really historic in terms of how far back it goes in terms of dams and their necessity for economic progress.
0: Exactly. And it really goes back into this long history of how are the British developing this basin, right? And what the question should be, if you're a patriotic Pakistani, what you should really question is, okay, so this model that we have is basically bequeathed by the British, by colonial administrators who are long gone, okay, they had very profitable, they gave very good returns to those investors in London, you know, done, dusted, you know, closed off, right, those schemes. We are left with the model that remains. So is this what we want? Is this how we envision the economy of the country? So if 60 to 70% of the country's population is still involved with some kind of an agricultural activity, right? So if you just think about it, take a broad perspective, right? Has any country really been able to go up the chain of economic development with that much of the population still doing very low value agriculture? which is creating a massive amount of ecological damage also on the very land that you live in, right? So let's just, if, I mean, if you're sincerely patriotic, that should be your starting question mark. The other thing that Pakistanis do, which is very interesting if you think about it and if you study water, right, is we behave as if the Indus is the only river that is transboundary. That's just not true. Rivers around the world, massive basins, okay, that countries run. So let's give one example. Let's get it out of the Indus because sometimes people can get very personally sort of, you know, committed to like this is our basin, right? Okay, so the Mekong River, also a huge river originating again in Tibet where all of the sort of major rivers of Asia sort of, you know, originate. Okay, China has built many upstream dams in that, in the territory that it controls. And all of last year there was very good research that all of the downstream countries, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, all of these were really suffering major droughts, similarly in the Delta as you're describing, right? So fish stocks were down, all of the sort of farming that you could do as well as, as, well as the fisheries that you could get out, they were all reduced. And now there is good evidence that what was happening was, is that instead of the historical flows that these countries have have been used to, right, um, that water was being stored upstream. So the complaint of downstream areas is actually very similar when water is held back upstream. So this idea that if someone downstream in the Delta next to the Arabian Sea is complaining, That somehow this is unnationalistic, or unpatriotic. It's, you know, these are just factual sort of things. They happen in Delta after Delta after Delta, right? So upstream China is able to do the same thing to downstream countries. So upstream Punjab may be able to do the similar things to Sin. Meanwhile, why is the control of Kashmir so critical? Kashmir is absolutely critical because India is making massive projects, okay? Mm-hmm. Several dozen projects to control water, at least it's sort of, you know, while it passes its its territory, right? So, of course, you know, the, the erstwhile Kashmiris, of course, get no say in what's happening, even if it's just run-of-the-river projects for electricity generation and then to sort of, you know, electrify the rest of India, right? So they get no say through the water that passes, meanwhile, downstream Pakistan really does suffer. So the vulnerability is locational, just as it is for Pakistan as a whole through whatever happens to the control of Kashmir, similarly downstream, right? So Mm. we should be intellectually open enough to situate ourselves and say, this is not some unbelievably uh, wild thing that no one can conceive ever happens. This does happen. It happens in countries after countries, sets of countries, right? It does happen. So is this the fact? Of course it's a fact and these things happen, right? So we have to sort of think about them. And then the question really has to be, well, is this what we want? So when I was talking about trust building, if there was a sense that when you develop hardware, which is say infrastructure, the rules with which you operate that hardware can either build trust or erode trust. So what are some of the problems, right? When are the link canals that are basically a construct of the Indus Waters Treaty, right? That's what happens because these so-called three eastern rivers under that treaty signed in 1960 were diverted towards India. So the western rivers, say the Jehlam and the Chenab, that water now had to be taken to previously eastern Punjab that had been indicated by those so called Eastern rivers, right? So you had to operate these massive link canals. So the transparency around the rules with which you operate the infrastructure, when are dams going to be filled? When are dams under what conditions going to be emptied? You talked about flooding, right? So climate is changing. In the short term, at least, glaciers will melt more. About 60% of the Indus's water comes from glacial flow. That's a lot think about how vulnerable we are to climate change. Because a glacier is like a water bank, right? That's the best way to think about it. Once it's gone, you've drawn it down, it's gone.
1: It's not (laughs) coming back for decades, if not centuries.
0: Centuries, millennia, whatever. You have no idea when it refreezes, doesn't freeze. But if your entire economic model is reliant on 60% glacial melt, and those glaciers at some point in the not too far future, because nations should think in hundreds of years at least, right, in terms of policy, are going to be gone. So supposing now on the landmass of Pakistan, we have half the water, roughly speaking, as we currently do, have access to. Meanwhile, the population is
1: it's probably going to double. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah,
1: Pakistan still has the, one of the highest birth rates in all of South Asia and- Over the world, actually, is one of the leading countries there.
0: That's right. And some of the worst health indicators. So there are absolutely districts in Pakistan, and and, and this is quite prevalent, actually, where there's 40% malnutrition and stunting. That's sub-Saharan Africa levels of hunger. Okay, So if the economic model of we have this massive agricultural endowment would be to let's develop our people and, you know, have them have more access to money, better food as a result that they'll be able to afford. Well, look, just take a just take a clean view. It hasn't worked. Newsflash, right? That has not worked. So if those results of economic development have not been sort of materialized with what we have going, well, what? why would we want to keep doing just sort of let's double down? Einstein
1: would say it's madness to keep doing it, right?
0: That doesn't make sense. You should be saying, you know, that sort of time out. Let's sit back and figure out how is this entire thing with all its moving parts moving? And what direction is it heading in? You know, I mean,
1: so I mean, that's, again, it's a separate conversation altogether, but essentially that is the structural issue with Pakistan's political economy, right? Like I'm going back to where we started, which are the the bankers in London. You've replaced those investors in London with the investors in Lahore and Karachi, the feudal lords. Pakistan hasn't had land reform. So whatever happens to that land at the end of the day, they continue to get rich and richer. Um, Whereas, yes, as you said, some new uh, human development indicators show that Pakistan is worse than sub-Saharan Africa or at sub-Saharan Africa level. So that again is the is the broken nature of the entire system, right? So that extractive nature from the British era, the British imperial era, is still there. It's just that we've replaced the white masters with brown sahibs who are the feudal lords who rule over the land and continue to extract wealth from there. But that's a Whole different conversation about how do we solve it. I know we're running out of time, so I want to end this uh, episode, which has been a great discussion. In terms of something I ask a lot of experts that I have uh, on the show, which is if you were to then advise the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Imran Khan in this instance, about these challenges and what he needs to do as the Prime Minister of the country to solve for, and again, have this long term 50, 60, year vision about what to do with pakistan's unique challenges in the water economy uh, what would be two or three things that you would suggest that he look at and try to make a change on
0: okay so i this is actually great because i'm not sure that anyone's like listening or will pay any attention to these things which of course they should but you know so let me do that so i think the one thing that we should very seriously focus on right is institutional development which is the software that I'm talking about, right? If you go in and really look at the institutional capacity of the governance institutions that we currently have in charge, right? I assure you that if I had one word to think about it, I would say that it was dismal, okay? This is the imaginative capacity of people who are within these institutions. I will not single anyone out, but there is a plethora of them. There is something called the Industrial System Authority, IRSA, okay? which is several decades long, if you really go and look at what is the capacity within those members and do they really understand these things and all of their moving parts and their role in it, you know, I I really think there's a problem, right? There's institutions like Wabda, there's provincial irrigation departments, there's like a huge, you know, there's like a patchwork of like letters, right, that do this. I
1: remember, sorry to interrupt on that, but I'm going back when you spoke at the Pakistan embassy in Washington a couple of years ago. I don't know if it was you or someone else who had talked about how even institutionally there was a vast difference of capacity between the Pakistani side of the Indus Water Treaty negotiators and what the Indians were putting up and the data and the analysis gaps that were there. That again popped up in my head when you talked about institutional capacity because I remember that point being made a couple of years ago here in DC as well.
0: I think that's right, because this is, you know, what is essential? And there's now been a lot of work that's been done in the Indus Waters Treaty, right? But essentially, there is now very good information that what was India's proposal, okay, subsequently became the World Bank's proposal, subsequently became what materialized into as the treaty. Wow. Right. You know, it's always the thing, even with the American Declaration of Independence, as it was written. Right. It's who writes the draft. Right. Always
1: in any any policy who writes the first draft.
0: Right. And that's so necessary to focus on. So our institutional capacity really, really is weak. The thing is, institutional reform is very boring. Okay, there is no ribbon to be cut. There need not be any investment project that is coming in in terms of a loan, either from the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank, right? There's no hundreds of millions of dollars coming in that says, we'll do institutional reform. Okay, so, you know, which can come in for capital investments, right? It's just, let's, you know, to put a simple word on it, it's sexier. Institutional reform, meanwhile, is very, very boring. And it's dull and you have to get into the weeds of, okay, let's look at these papers. Let's look at these rules. Ah, you don't have any rules for how you do it. Where do you get the legal authority to do this from? We don't know. It's just like we've been operating like this for decades. Wow, should we not? So it's boring. Okay, it's utterly boring. But someone has to very seriously get into doing the boring work with sincere sincerity. That says, look, no, we absolutely need to build institutional capacity. It's a huge problem. It's, I mean, and if we can solve that, that's already a huge win. My other pet peeve is because I happen to be an educator, I really think about this seriously. We have left what is absolutely critical to Pakistan's past, present, and future this water governance essentially to within these very opaque bureaucrats. More people very seriously need to educate themselves, schools, colleges, law colleges. I mean, for instance, why don't we, this is something I keep talking about. Why don't we teach water law, for instance? Why isn't this a subject? Right. Because then you could ask these questions, you could ask these utilitarian questions, which I am putting on the table and with expanded utilitarianism, right, which says, let's think of ecological outcomes also, not just financial outcomes. Right. So this is our new ethos, 21st century thinking, how do we manage these things? Right. So we need to put more disciplines into it. Right now, who manages this economy for the most part are irrigation engineers right? Who can build you the the canal? Absolutely, right? They can give you the gradient of the canal, right? But that's not what this is about. It is one part of what that involves, and yet it involves all these other questions, right? So we need history, law, politics, economics, environmental economics, I mean, right? So all of these things have to come in, and we really have to study water. So we're not training our human capital to think about what we could be, like we could be the best in the world. I kid you not, with some sincerity, commitment, there's a massive river basin that we have been managing. we what got, you know, a century and a half of experience. Where could we take it? We could take it in really dynamic, sustainable ways and be a model for other river basins in the world, right? So no one thinks in those terms, And I mean, you know, the debate is in these very little, minute or should we... Will this hardware or not, right? And then that is where the debate is mired, instead of, wow, where could we be going? So I want that to be seeded somehow.
1: No, I think I would just add to water law, maybe water history as well, right? The first 10 minutes of this discussion, that was a very quick overview of why Pakistan's water system and agricultural system is the way it is. I had never heard of that before. <laughs> you forget about Pakistan studies, but even just in general, in alternate history that is now becoming more and more mainstream, you don't really hear, you know, and so people a lot of times are like, when you ask them, why is this structured the way it is? And it's just like, well, because it is. This So that's the answer you hear, right? So um, this was fascinating. Again, thank you so much for taking out the time for educating us about Pakistan's water economy and its challenges. And I think, the recommendations you made. Uh, I know you said no one's listening, but I think we have some listeners that tune into a lot of these, you know, as as you said, mundane and boring policy issues. And I think hopefully the goal is maybe at some point, people will start paying attention to the systems and why they are the way they are and think about what innovations we need to change uh, things and not just keep doing them just because they are the way they are. So again, thank you so much uh, and have a great weekend.
0: Thank you so much. And I'm very much someone who is a glass is half full person, which is why I get involved in these things and I want to probe them. So absolutely, the glass is half full. And let's go forward with that, you know, that spirit.
1: uh, Usually it it, it ends on a pretty downbeat note, but that's a really upbeat note. So again, thank you for that. So much. Thank you for tuning in for this episode of Pakistanomy. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you like this podcast, please do subscribe to it using your favorite podcast app and do share it with your friends and family as well as on your social media. Hope you tune in next time.